At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The year is 2006, and Mr. Shear, would you like this podcast shaken or stirred? Does it look like I give a damn? The movie? Casino Royale. everyone and welcome to Unspooled, where we unspool some of the greatest films and see if they are truly classics or if we just remember them that way. I am joined by Amy Nicholson, a film critic who writes for the New York Times. In that sonorous voice you hear is Paul Shear, actor, writer, director, and fan of a basketball team that shall not be named. Just the basketball team that owns Los Angeles. Anyway... <laughs> Let's not talk about basketball. Let's talk about James Bond and Daniel Craig as James Bond. Back in 2006, people did not like this at all. We're going to get into the controversy of casting a blonde man as James Bond. Ooh, the humanity. <laughs> and we're going to get into my pick for best Bond girl of all time. Eva Green as Vesper Berlin, a Bond girl who might be so charismatic and charming, she may have ruined the rest of Daniel Craig's tenure. And I'm going to ask a question that I've been wrestling with. Did this franchise go too far? Did they rip it down to the studs at the expense of continuing the James Bond tradition? But did it do that and still make the best Bond film of modern history? I would say maybe. Well, let's unspool it. So, Amy, it's 2006 and everyone is asking who is going to be the next James Bond, which is a question that frankly, I'm surprised people care about because James Bond has gotten creaky in the years that we have left him since Goldfinger. I mean, yes, we've seen James Bond being played by George Lazenby for one film, Roger Moore for a long time, Timothy Dalton, a short run, Pierce Brosnan, kind of an equally short run. Now, Pierce Brosnan, interesting fact, he was supposed to jump into the franchise, but Remington Steele messed that up for him. He came in and his movies are making James Bond a little bit lame. Like, everyone really wanted him, but, I mean, Amy, 
Do you remember some of those scenes from the Pierce Brosnan franchise? I mean, I think in the last movie, he had an invisible car. The Vanish. Oh, very good. Adaptive camouflage, tiny cameras on all sides project the image they see onto a light-emitting polymer skin on the opposite side. You see, to the casual eye, it's as good as invisible. Dude, the last thing we even saw the Pierce Brosnan Bond do was have this awful, awful erotic scene with Halle Berry where they're just doing the lamest double entendres ever. In this scene, he's like sticking diamonds in her belly button, and this is how they're talking. Wait, don't pull it out. I'm not finished with it yet. Well, at least that's better than the final line of the film before that, where Denise Richards plays um, a physicist. Christmas Jones, right? Christmas Jones. And the last <laughs> line is, I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Oh, God. Ooh, it Ugh. was rough. And you know what? Bonds were looking like bonds, but they weren't acting like bonds. And plus, on top of all of that, we are coming off of Austin Powers. You know, we are coming off of 9-11 People needed Bond to be reinvented, and we didn't know what we really wanted. All we knew was the Roger Moore photocopy, the tougher Bond that we tried to do a little bit with Timothy Dalton, just wasn't clicking at all. At all. It is feeling creaky, it is feeling desperate, and it is up to our new Bond. It is up to Daniel Craig to rescue the Bond reputation, which is going to be hard because as soon as he's cast, the British press gets its crumpets in the twist about the fact that Daniel Craig is <gasps> blonde. There oh can't be a blonde Bond. This is as uh, as like uh, news breaking as Obama wearing a tan suit. <laughs> like it really is like, why are we hung up on this? Shouldn't we just be casting the best actor? Well, he's got something to prove. And the way that he's going to prove it is that this Bond is going to go back to basics. This is the very first official Bond reboot in five decades of history. And so they're going all the way back to the very first official Bond book, Casino Royale. And in this book, we meet a Bond who is not like a suave, experienced super spy assassin. He's a brute. He's a thug. And the way that Daniel Craig plays him is like, you know, dorky shirts. He's drinking frat boy drinks. And in the opening scenes, he kills his first two people ever to earn his stripes as a 007. This movie floats the idea that having a double O in front of your number is kind of like the M16 version of having a teardrop tattoo on your face. <laughs> Casino Royale kicks off with the greatest chase scene in Bond history. I mean, honestly, maybe film history, where you have Bond chasing this guy who's like a bomb maker, a parkour expert through Madagascar, and then Bond causes an international stir when instead of capturing this guy to interrogate him about who's financing global terrorism, we already all know in the audience that it's Mads Mikkelsen's Le Chief, Bond publicly murders the guy at an embassy on camera and gets in a lot of trouble. Then we go to the Bahamas where Bond seduces the wife of a terrorist named Demetrius, then to an airport in Miami to prevent an airplane from exploding, then to the centerpiece of the film where he goes to a casino in Montenegro to destroy Le Chief's evil business by winning a $100 million game of poker. Bond's poker stake is funded by the British government and is in the control of the world's most glamorous accountant, Vesper Lind, played by Eva Green. 
Vesper and Bond fall in love, but there is tragedy ahead at the end of the film that is even worse than the sheaf whacking Bond in the nuts with a rope. And this tragedy will shape the entire rest of Craig's tenure as Bond, where instead of getting to gallivant merrily around the world in episodic adventures like Sean Connery, his Bond must grapple with a major five-film arc about loss and revenge and learning to love again. Well, some could say that that was heavily retconned as they went forward. It felt like they weren't really planning to do that. Then they went into it. Then they went away from it. And then they kind of shoehorned it all in. And does it make sense? Eh, you be the judge. I don't know. I would say that that's probably the weakest part of the whole thing. But uh, but they definitely make this bond very uh, gloomy. Uh, depending on the film and when he remembers that he is dealing with all this stuff and the fact that everything has all been at the, I mean. Uh, you know, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, at anyway. least all that gloom comes later because Casino Royale, this Bond, he's rough and tumble and he is fun as hell, baby. Uh, Casino Royale hit theaters on November 17th, 2006 and became the biggest Bond smash of its day. It made $616 million at the box office. And then the later Craig Bonds were also huge hits. The peak was Skyfall. That made $1.1 billion. And what they learned during this Craig tenure was that people love it when a guy who drives girls wild is also tormented by love. And that was in the zeitgeist when the film was released on November 17th, 2006, because the number one song was by boy band heartthrob Justin Timberlake, and it was called My Love. I can see us holding hands, walking from the beach, our toes in the sand. I can see us on the countryside, sitting on the grassland side by side. You could be my baby, let me make you my lady. Girl, you amaze me, we gotta do nothing crazy. See, all I want you to do is be my love. That song is a banger. I miss it when Justin Timberlake made bangers. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know what? Another thing that ties Justin Timberlake to James Bond uh, is that he also played the nemesis Lecoq in the another uh, Mike Myers franchise film or potential franchise film, Love Guru. He he was the villain in Love Guru. How did he I was black Jacques that? Lecoq. I mean, I blacked that entire movie out of my memory. All I remember is there's an elephant and then feeling miserable. I remember the theater where I saw the Love Guru at, and every time I drive by that theater, I still get mad. I still get mad. They don't have press screenings there anymore. It was a weird one-off. And I still think, I hate you. I hate my memories from that time. But let's talk about uh, happier things. Like the fact that Casino Royale is fantastic. I uh, have to say, most of the bonds that Craig would go on to play, not, I have not been into the movie. I have not been into most of the Craig bonds. I, fi- I finally finished out like the whole, you know, franchise only like a week or two ago. I finally made myself watch the last film because I knew we were going to do this. And I was like, all right, ho-hum, blah, 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 blah. Then to go back and watch Casino Royale, God, this movie is so good. This movie is just amazing. Oh, Amy, I really disagree with that. I think that Daniel Craig brought this franchise forward. There are some plotting issues and some bad scripting. Also, you have to remember that the second James Bond film in this franchise happened during the writer's strike, so they couldn't really correct things on the fly, and I think that that film definitely suffers from that. And I feel like Spectre was an attempt at trying to marvelize the James Bond franchise by making it all connected, and I feel like that really put a lot of pressure on this five-film arc that he had, but I do think that they stuck the landing on the last film. Um, and personally, for me, I think that Skyfall is uh, the tip of the peak. Like, 
Casino Royale is, is essentially our Dr. No. It really sets the table really well. But then I think Skyfall is our goldfinger, if you will. I mean, I will agree that Skyfall is the most beautiful looking of the modern Bonds. I think the cinematography, I think the set pieces are gorgeous in that film. But I just, I can't get over one scene in Skyfall that like has made me hate that film. That that I've just and I, and make me hate Daniel Craig's Bond in it, and that's just the one where like it. Do you remember the character Severine? Yeah, yeah. So he meets Severine. You know, she's sort of like a, I don't know, kind of introduces almost like a Vesperlin knockoff. But then you learn that she was like a victim of childhood sexual trafficking. She seems to be sort of interesting. I like that character a lot. And then the way that she dies in that movie, where Bond and Javier Bardem. Have the shoot off where like Javier Bardem puts like a glass of whiskey on her head and he makes James Bond try to shoot it off. And then he just shoots Severine. And it's just so cold and callous of that character. And like the nail in the head is like then Bond just makes this grim quip. I win. What do you say to that? <sighs> it's a waste of good scotch. I, I just have never gotten over that scene. It really broke something for me for the rest of the Bonds where I was like, I don't like this character anymore. I don't care how traumatized he is. Oh. I'm done. And like him falling in love, whatever. And like, no, I'm just, I've, I really was over the character at that moment. Amy, I a hard disagree there. I don't even really remember that scene. For me, what I take away from that is great villain, great song, amazing opening, and truly a fantastic performance by Judy Dench, like that ending, that build, that relationship is something that I love so much about this franchise. And that to me was just a great way to connect these two characters, learn a little bit more about Bond and learn a little bit more about M. And I, I really enjoyed that. Well, to me, I like my Bond cranky, but untraumatized. And I think that's why Casino Royale works is he doesn't become trauma Bond until the very end and what we get is like a Bond becoming Bond, a Bond becoming the killer that he is, a Bond becoming kind of closer to the killer that Ian Fleming had from all along. You know, the way that Ian Fleming described him in the book in Casino Royale was that, quote, you know, his face was a taciturn mask, ironical, brutal and cold. And that is so much the face that you see in Daniel Craig. His eyes look like they came straight from like a freezer. They look like two of those, what are those ice otter pops? You know, like how they had the electric blue ones Yeah, that were in the plastic sleeve. It's like you took those and balled them up and then you put them in Daniel Craig's face. That's what he looks like. And then the popsicles made his whole spirit cold and everything in him went icy. That's, I, that's this bond. All right, so hold on. Let me get this straight. So what are you saying? You like that this James Bond is dark so you don't like James Bond before this? No, I'm saying that in this film, this collision of like ironical and brutal and Daniel Craig and popsicle eyes is perfect. And then I don't really love where they take it after it. But in this moment, I feel like Craig really nails something essential about the Ian Fleming Bond. And what I think is so striking about Casino Royale is that it's directed by Martin Campbell, you know, and Martin Campbell is the guy who also directed the very first Brosnan Bond. He's the guy who did Goldeneye. And so Martin Campbell is this guy in Bond lore who like comes in to start off the Brosnan Bond, you know, make make that the reboot feel, you know, figure out how to, how to transition from Dalton to Brosnan. And in that way, he, you know, leaned into Bond being like charming 
sophisticated. And that's how he like revamped him in the 90s, you know, while also including stuff like having Judy Dench call, you know, the Brosnan Bond, like a sexist, misogynist dinosaur and a relic of the Cold War and all of that, but to make him like fun again. And I love that it was Campbell who again was hired to say, as a bit of a Bond scholar, what element of Bond will I draw out now? And they trust the same guy to do something radically different with the same character. And I think that's fascinating. I think that Martin Campbell makes this film look amazing. I'm thinking about all these set pieces. It's a pared down Bond, but it still feels as exciting as Bond's past. But I really want to play devil's advocate throughout this episode because I truly feel like in rewatching it, as much as I love this film, I think it did some things poorly in setting up how it can progress into the future. I think that the reinvention of this movie might be the downfall or the issues that I have with the other four films in its series. So as much as I want to applaud Martin and Purvis and Wade and Paul Haggis for this great standalone James Bond film, I also want to stand back and go, you might have fucked yourselves too. Okay, I'm eager to explore this with you because I finished watching Casino Royale and was on a super, super high. And I hear this reluctance in your voice and I can't figure it out. And we are really going to have to open up a bottle of gin and figure this out. I'm ready to do it. And look, I'm a huge James Bond fan. I'm just saying this is part of the show. Let's break it down critically. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So then let's just jump in to how Martin Campbell, new to this franchise writer Paul Haggis, create this arc of Bond that we're going to see Daniel Craig go on in this movie, which to me, I feel like Casino Royale has the biggest Daniel Craig, James Bond arc of anything he's going to wind up doing. We see him become a 007 in the intro. We see him learn to wear tuxedos and order martinis. We see a whole range of this Bond in a film that's designed so that it ends with finally hearing the theme we know, finally getting to know that this is the Bond that we're going to be familiar with going forth. It's like a becoming. And weirdly, can I float something to you, Paul? Sure. I feel like the opening of Casino Royale, if it rips off anything in this world, it is to me a nod to The Wizard of Oz. I see your shocked face. Let me explain. We open with this like really stark kind of grim black and white prog, you know, and it's all just this world of like colorlessness and James Bond is there and he's not a 007 yet because he hasn't killed two people. And then we get this like 
gritty flashback where he kills a person in a way that's more brutal than I would say we've seen James Bond ever kill anybody in any moment of this franchise. You know, he's like kicking a dude into urinals. The film stock that Martin Campbell's shooting on is so grainy. It looks like a snuff film, honestly, more than anything I've ever seen in a Bond franchise. You know, I'm comparing like the dirty snuff film feel of this to the Connery kind of glossy and suave. And then finally he shoots the second person And the blood runs over the screen and it makes his world color again. It's almost like Bond going into Oz and becoming this like colorful character that he's going to be forever. It's like blood gives Bond life. And that's kind of beautifully represented. But also that's a dark idea. It is dark. And I think what I really appreciate about this movie is that they go for it. They've been trying for years now to figure out how to bring James Bond into the now, but also have all the things that we love about James Bond. And what happens really in like the last, you know, two decades of James Bond is they get into these areas where they touch a darkness. You know, they they have these more brutal death scenes. In the last Pierce Brosnan film, he's been held captive and we see James Bond being traded as a prisoner of war with long hair, We're walking down these lines of trying to show Bond being beaten down. But 30 minutes later, he's back, he's quipping, he's dressed in a tuxedo. And this film, I think, finally goes for it. And I don't know if that's Paul Haggis coming in with his background of being uh, more of a dramatic writer and not a writer of Bond films, but really connecting to this Ian Fleming version of the character, the character that I think the broccolis have been protecting by keeping it light and family friendly. And for this film, they go decidedly adult. This movie is way more adult than most James Bond films have been. I think with the exception of Timothy Dalton, which played in that zone, but I don't think it really worked. So they went back and Pierce Brosnan is very much more of a Roger Moore clone than he is anything else. And this opening sequence lets you know It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be like aspirational. This is what it really would be like to work for MI6. Yeah, it's almost like that review uh, we read from Austin Powers, remember last week, where that critic was like, people should know that spies don't even look as handsome as James Bond usually does. They're kind of weird looking. Remember that from the end of the sort of critiquing that? This kind of takes that idea, I think, and runs with it a little bit. They're like, This is not glamorous business. And I appreciate that it does something that I think you agree with in which it figures out how to make Bond less of a superhero. You know, like that this Bond in that first chasing that I love so much in Madagascar, he's like competing, running against this bomb maker who is doing the parkour and leaping everywhere and has all of this finesse and all these skills. And he's like leaping over fences and all of these things. And Bond cannot do that. In this movie does not pretend that Bond can do that. Instead, what it leans into is that Bond isn't an athlete in that way, but he is blunt and he is persistent. If this guy is going to do a backflip over a fence, Bond is going to get into a bulldozer, literally a bulldozer, and just bulldoze her way towards the guy. And that they figure out a way to represent- He literally runs through a wall. Yeah, he lit like he's like Bond Kool-Aid man. It's so funny. He literally Kool-Aid mans. And I love the fight choreography of this, that he's bad at almost all of the leaps he tries to do chasing this guy, but that this Bond is set up as being 
relentless, determined, a quick thinker. He can outthink this guy. He can figure out where he's going to go, but he's not graceful. Nothing about him is graceful. Well, in many ways, the one thing that this Bond has, his superpower, is reading someone, right? That's the whole reason why he plays the poker tournament at the end of the film, is because M knows that he could be the best player because he can figure out people's moves. And I like that idea as a superpower because that's what will keep Bond alive. That kind of mental gamemanship is what a spy needs, not a shoe that turns into a switchblade or, you know, a car with an ejector seat. It is truly his bare hands, his brain. And yes, he's assisted by, uh, you know, uh, a paddle to pump his heart back to life and some other little, little yeah. gadgets, but they're all kind of believable and and real. And it's also a bond that can take a punch and gets punched a lot. And even in that opening sequence, we haven't seen Bond go down. The only time we see Bond go down is when he is fighting someone so physically massive that it would be impossible to land a punch, right? Like that has always been like a part of Bond. Like, And I feel like here he's often matched and often trapped by other guys. He's He is a good fighter. He's a scrapper, but he's not whipping out jujitsu. He's not, you know, able to defend anyone. It's not quick fighting like Bourne. It is down and dirty fighting across the board. And like you said, in that opening sequence, it's, you know, maybe he would miss that carrier and die. Like they, you feel that there's an energy there. And even at the end, he's caught. Like he is caught. He gets caught by cameras. He gets, you know, put on the cover of papers his identity is blown in a national way. Yeah, it's success and failure in the same breath. And if there's anything he keeps, you know, kind of telling him that he's aware of, it's that double O's don't have a long lifespan. That it's almost like you got promoted in a way that will shorten your life. And he seems very familiar with that idea and almost to accept it, but also almost to feel like the job you are asking me to do is crazy. He has that line I just want to hear the entrance of M here in this movie. Have you ever seen such a bunch of self-righteous, ass-covering prigs? They don't care what we do. They care what we get photographed doing. And how the hell could Bond be so stupid? I give him double O status and he celebrates by shooting up an embassy. Is the man deranged? And where the hell is he? In the old days, if an agent did something that embarrassing, he'd have the good sense to defect. Christ, I miss the Cold War. Her frustration with this Bond, I really like. Her irritation with him. She doesn't trust this guy. She doesn't consider him to be the person she can rely on to save the British government. And he, in response, asks her, you want me to be half monk, half hitman? And really sets up this kind of absolutely unnatural position that we expect Bond to be. Better than everybody else, more skilled than everybody else, able to kill, able to always do the right thing. And he's like, absolutely not. That's not at all how this character is and how he's going to be played. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I love the idea that you pointed out that like the gadget he gets in this movie is just like a very practical miniature defibrillator. Like, that's it. That's it. And that's so smart. I mean, I really appreciate the ways in which this movie strips Bond back to just absolute basics. I mean, when we see him get behind the wheel of a car for the first time, he is driving a Ford sedan. 
And that is just so marvelous. You're like, oh, where's his Aston Martin? He's like, no, I'm going to be in a Ford sedan. And then he like trades up to like a Range Rover when he pretends to be a valet for a second. And then he only finally wins like the Aston Martin in a card game later on. But it's almost like he's, I don't know. What's that like whole bit where a guy would trade a paperclip and he wound up with a house? I feel like he's doing that with his Ford sedan and then winding up with an Aston Martin. But even that is just like seeing the stages of what it takes to turn this like Ford driving Kool-Aid man wearing like some ridiculous Hawaiian goofy shirt covered in dirt to become the Aston Martin driving like slickster in a tuxedo. I really wrestle with this because I love this movie. I think it does it so well. I also think it sets a template up for so many reboots that it kind of makes me uncomfortable to see what they did. They stripped this Bond down to nothing to build him up. And then I think what happens with this Bond is he is then forever saddled by everything that we know of him. We can't make him a real person in the real world and then not have him carry over emotions because we'll stop caring about him. So you're right, like, This is a defection from the superhero Bond, the love him and leave him Bond, the Bond who gets injured but is back up at work the next day. Like this Bond gets his balls destroyed and is laid up in a hospital for quite some time. Like this not an ultimately quippy healing Bond. Like even when he comes back at Le Chiffre with his taunts, when he's getting tortured there. I've got a little itch down there. Would you mind? He doesn't win. He would have died. And I think this whole movie, in stripping him back, we get a great first film, but we have trouble continuing it on for five more films because the consequences are so great here. And I think that that's, to me, a hard thing to navigate because can you like a first film, but also feel like that first film does kind of a bad job at setting up where he goes after it? I mean, I guess I can't see why the later Bond films couldn't figure out a way for him to grapple with, make peace with Vesper's death. I don't know why they had to feel so monotone to me the whole time. Because this is a guy who very confidently earlier in the film, you know, M is like, being emotional is not your problem. I would ask you if you could remain emotionally detached. But I don't think that's your problem, is it, Bond? No. Don't worry about keeping in touch. We'll know where you are. I would more likely believe that that bond would lean into being kind of like a fun, cold playboy again. I guess more like the Roger Moore bond, which who I don't like very much. Uh, I I don't know why with the Bond franchise, if there's like one scene I don't like, I'm like, that's it. I'm tapped out of this Bond. But it is, it is. Well, I think it seems like you're wrestling with Bond in general, because I don't think that anything that you're referencing is unique. Like it's, it like, it is a franchise that I think has, you know, some misogynistic tendencies. And of course, I think they're going to like be triggering on some level. Well, yeah, but I don't know why I can forgive Connery for like spanking Dink on the ass. But I can't forgive uh, Roger Moore for sticking Britt Eklund in a closet. But maybe that's why I appreciate parts of the Craig Bond is because he's very upfront about like, 
I'm not a good guy. He has that whole scene with like the very first Bond woman that we see him seduce, uh, Solange, played by Katerina Marino, where she's like, why can't I like a good man? What is it about bad men? You, my husband. I had so many chances to be happy. So many nice guys. Why can't nice guys be more like you? Because mm, then they'd be bad. Mm, yeah. But mm. uh, so much more interesting. I mean, that scene is the first time we get to see this Bond seduce a woman. How do you think he does? I think he does a fine job, but that's not the Bond that we're talking about. Like, in a way, that's the Bond that we know traditionally from the films. I think what I'm wrestling with, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, because on the surface, I really like this movie. But I also have this question, did they pull back too much? You know, if we meet this James Bond and he is this killing brute but then we deconstruct the killing brute to make him someone who I think arguably falls in love for the very first time in this movie. Is that supposed to happen in the first film or is that supposed to happen in the second film? Like, how do you get growth when you've basically torn down the things that we know? You've almost torn down too many studs, right? Like we introduce him, we leave him. There's a a part of me that feels like they tried to do too much reinvention, and in doing that... Hold on, wait, wait, wait. I feel like you're saying maybe Eva Green is so good at Vesper Lynn that none of us can get over it. That it's almost like she's so good in this role and their chemistry is so good that maybe us and the audience were like, you can't get over this love. Because in Casino Royale, you know, she betrays him, he moves on. It's not that big of a deal in the book. It's not that big of a deal in the parody version. But here it feels like a big deal. And I wonder how much of that is just the fact that Eva Green makes this character amazing. Like, I really fall for their relationship. I mean, from their very first scene where they're sitting on on the train and taking turns psychoanalyzing each other. Compensates by wearing slightly masculine clothing, being more aggressive than her female colleagues, which gives her a somewhat prickly demeanor. And ironically enough, makes it less likely for her to be accepted and promoted by her male superiors who mistake her insecurities for arrogance. Now, I'd have normally gone with only child, but, um, you see, by the way you ignored the quip about your parents, I'm going to have to go with orphan. By the cut of his suit, you went to Oxford or wherever and actually think human beings dressed like that. But you were it with such disdain. My guess is you didn't come from money, and your school friends never let you forget it. Which means you were at that school by the grace of someone else's charity, hence the chip on your shoulder. And since your first thought about me ran to orphan, that's what I'd say you are. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed hearts. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. How was your lamb? Skewered. On sympathizers. That little bit where she was like, how was your lamb? And he says, skewered. Is is so funny. It's like the first time I think in Casino Royale that you see that little bit of like fun in his eyes, that little glimmer. You see him wake up a little bit and stop being such an unemotional man because she's just so wonderful. And that's honestly how I feel every time I see Eva Green do anything. I think Eva Green is one of the actresses that we do not get enough of ever on screen. And every time she shows up, 
She's so smart and so witty and so perceptive and so sexy and so alive and so electric that I have not gotten over her loss in the franchise. I'm like, if you could retcon this and she like emerges like some sort of phoenix from the elevator underground and we get Vesper Lynn for the entire franchise, I'd be happy. I would put up with whatever nonsense you came up with to let that happen. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, what they do in this movie, again, talking about subverting expectations, is they continue it past the end. Normally, a Bond movie ends with, you know, the two of them going off on some sort of vacation. They're away. Bond is checked out. You know, he's getting his week-long rest after a, a mission yeah, well shoving foiled. diamonds in Hallie's belly button. But we never see why he's never with that woman again. It's the Indiana Jones of it all until they brought back Karen Allen. Like, well, why did they break up? What? Why aren't they together? And this movie does a really interesting thing, which is it pretty much goes for 30 minutes after our bad guy is dead and the case is closed. Like there's a longer story to it. So I do think there is something really interesting about this movie calling its end on an emotional beat, not a plot beat. Yeah, it really is almost like James Bond is subject to our cultural shift that you can't write a character in 1950 then expect him to work the same way in the 2020s. That like we in the audience are exerting like an outside pressure on James Bond. That we need somebody in the 90s to say like, yo, you act like a dinosaur to women. That I still kind of need like Judy Dench to show up when Solange gets killed. You know, Solange, I actually th- don't even think they really get to sleep together. I think they're about to sleep together. Then he gets called away. Then he gives her caviar and she still dies. And I appreciate that this movie takes that moment for Judy Dench to be like quite a body count that you're wrapping up, you know, here. Yeah, I think it's James Bond doesn't really have that much like casual sex. Like when he's having or attempting to have sex, he's just there for a reason. And a reason that he's not even trying to hide. He basically asks her, what do you know about this plan? He's engaged, but not. And when you think he's calling up for room service because he's about to have sex, he's just going to leave her there. Like he, the other James Bonds, enjoy sex, it seems like, right? They would be like, I have five minutes to spare. Like, that's exactly what Connery would do. I have five minutes. And then he'd order the caviar and then he'd leave. Yeah, and that, to me, feels like the difference here with James Bond. Like, this is a character that isn't just a man of pleasures. He is a, you know, I think that there is a part of this movie that is about exploring the psychology of Bond, like what makes a person like this? Like if you were to work for this organization where you have to put your life over, you know, 
the queen's life? Like what, what kind of person is that? And I think that that's something that, you know, this, this, uh, this version of Bond takes on. Yeah. And I think that's on us. I think we're super uncomfortable with casual sex in movies. And so like we've made Bond get more chaste because when I think about it, he doesn't actually bone anybody in this movie, but Eva, he's a, he's a one woman man in this movie. And, and then that relationship winds up meaning the world to us. But in this way, yeah, I don't think he is a man of pleasure. I mean, the thing that I really like to trace in him is the adaptation of Bond learning how to be Bond. Because the, the Bond that we first meet, the Bond who like, you know, emerges from the sea doing that kind of Ursula Andress in his like mini shorts, you know, dripping water. And he's like roaming around in the Bahamas. When he has a chance to order a drink, he goes up to the bar and he orders nothing classy. He orders a large rum and soda, right? Like that is Bond at his core in this film. He's a rum and soda guy. And then what we see happen to him from there is he has to go gambling. He has to dress up. He has to act like this high roller. He's wrestling, I think, in this film with this idea of who is my cover and who is the real me? You know, like he's supposed to go to this casino and have a fake name. I love that scene when they're like driving to the casino, they get their paper with the fake identity. He tells her that her name is Stephanie Broadchest. And we have no idea if he's just fucking with her or not. Like, I actually don't know. Is he kidding? Is he making a joke about it? Is that actually what they would name her? I don't know. And I appreciate that mystery of it. But he refuses to play along with that cover. Like they go up to the hotel clerk counter and he gives his real name. He's just like James Bond. He doesn't even say Bond, James Bond. He's just like James Bond. And he... James Bond, not good. Like he's not good at being a spy. Or he's Um, refusing to be a spy. Do you know, he doesn't fuck up. He like deliberately won't do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like, there's something in this movie where you watch him have to put on the trappings of who we think James Bond is. Like when he puts on that nice coat and goes down to gamble, that's not even the suit that he picked out. That's the suit that Vesper picked out for him. You know, and they have that cute little back and forth about like, you know, I sized you up. I have a dinner jacket. There are dinner jackets and dinner jackets. This is the latter. And I need you looking like a man who belongs at that table. How the... It's tailored. I sized you up the moment we met. So he's going down to this casino, not dressed in his own clothes, not dressed in anything he picked out as, you know, chafing against this identity he's supposed to play. And then he sits down in front of everybody and he orders this elaborate martini. Dry martini. Oui, monsieur. Wait. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of quinoa lily, shake it over rice, and then add a thin slice of lemon peel. Yes, sir. You know, I'll have one of those. So lie. Certainly. My friend, bring me one as well. Keep the fruit. And there's this moment where we're supposed to be like, oh, wow. I guess this like brute really understands his martinis and even all these rich guys are impressed. But there's that beat where like then he goes and he like quietly takes a sip of the martini and he's surprised that it tastes good. And you're aware that this James Bond has actually never ordered that martini before in his lifetime. He's only doing it to impress these other players and that it's all an affectation. And that later on, when somebody's like, okay, do you, do you want a martini? What do you want? He is more like this. Vodka martini. Chicken or stir? Do I look like I give a damn? 
What I'm saying is just like, that's what fascinates me about Casino Royale is seeing this gap between the bond of my imagination, the bond of history, and this guy putting on those clothes, putting on those threads, putting on that order. And by the way, like the day that I watched Casino Royale, I had to go to a nice steakhouse and I ordered a Vesper because that's the name that in Bondler he's going to give that really elaborate martini. My God, it was so good. It was so good. I was stunned how good it was. I thought it would just taste like a whole lot of expensive lighter fluid. It was marvelous and so smooth. I could have been drinking a glass of water. Well, look, just to play devil's advocate, I think everything we're talking about, though, are references to what we know from Bond. And we're enjoying it because it's doing it in a different way. Now, I think this movie does succeed because even if you don't know Bond, it's still really fun. It plays like a a great spy film. Um, And I think the lesson a lot of people took after this movie was just show them how they got to these spots and that's a movie. So I do think this is where this movie succeeds. It really does continually give you nods, but brings in a new audience. And maybe that's the secret here. Because GoldenEye, for as fun as it was, you needed to be a James Bond fan, right? It was a James Bond movie. They didn't reinvent the franchise. In this They're saying, hey, James Bond fans, stick with us. We're going to give you a lot of Easter eggs here, but we also are just making a straight down the middle spy movie. We're starting fresh. We're starting new. We're setting the table for you once again. And I feel like that's, to me, the biggest takeaway. And you can't say that without calling attention to the villain. The villain of this movie is so interesting to me because the villain here, Lashif, is someone who is incredibly desperate. There's no plan to destroy the world. Basically, he was creating a terrorist attack to get the stock market to drop a price so he would get money. Like it's it's all money-based. And when he loses his money, he's forced into the situation. And he is not a tough guy. And he's not a super powerful guy. He's a guy who is like essentially um, Bernie Madoff that maybe has some more terrorist aspirations. Uh, But like he is taking this money and he can get beat up. He can get threatened. He's a wimp. Like we see that moment where, you know, they come to collect the money from him in the hotel and they're about to cut off his girlfriend's arm. And the most damning moment is when those guys say, you didn't even say a word. And to me, we know everything we need to know about this character. He's not intimidating. He's not dangerous. He's dangerous to Bond when he has him locked up in a chair, but he is a desperate man. And I think a desperate man, and I think that's what Bond becomes too at a certain point, is willing to do anything to win or succeed. And I feel like that's the interesting thing between both of these characters. Before, you could never sympathize or get on the same page as a villain. And here, they both are down and dirty, desperate men trying to figure each other out. I like that. I like hearing you single out his desperation because you're right, like poisoning your competitor when you're playing poker against him. And oh, I love the music in the poison scene. He's like in the bathroom. He's like, oh no, oh no, I'm going to die. But you don't poison your competitor unless you're like, this guy's 
possibly better than me. I don't trust that I can beat this guy. So in a way, like poisoning Bon's martini is like a symbol of this guy's like desperation, this guy's weakness. And I am always super happy to have a villain who is not just going to be like magically beating you punch for punch. Oh, I hate that in spy movies where it's like suddenly you're fighting the big bad and he hasn't even seemed that intimidating, but yet he's like more more dangerous to you physically than like his massive henchmen. Whatever, that's always so, so lame. That, you know, Lashif being human, being human with, of course, like his weird little note of weeping blood. Weeping blood comes merely from a derangement of the tear duct, my dear general. Which, by the way, the way that he says derangement, that just made me for one little flash really wish that this character is played by Werner Herzog. He talks like Werner Herzog in that moment. Like, oh, make this be Werner Herzog. It's fun that actually this was uh, Mads Mikkelsen's, I would say, like his big U.S. breakout here. Although I do have to say, it feels a little weird to me that in like the Craig era, pretty much all the Bonds have some sort of physical disability or physical ailment. They all seem kind of strange that way. And it feels it feels a little bit, I don't know, icky. Like it feels icky in the aggregate, even though I like it in the individual to be like, you have a physical problem and you are evil. Unfortunately, I think that's one of these tropes that the Bond movies kind of fall into. The villains have to be physically weird or imposing in some sort of almost inhuman way. I think they do a great job here of just acknowledging it as something, but it's not like he's crying blood multiple times in the film. Like, as a matter of fact, I think the the one or two times that you see it, he's embarrassed by it. Like, it, it is... um defines the way that he walks through life, but it's not something like he cries blood whenever he's happy. Like it's a very, uh, I think in many respects, it was actually the most classy version of this, you know, this kind of a character. Yeah. Which by the way, did you know that they did a Casino Royale TV movie of this in 1954, right after the book came out? I've seen it. You've seen it. Oh, well then can we play a clip of the person who played Lashif in that? Because it is a person who I would like to believe is beloved by listeners of Unspooled. The original groundbreaking Lashif was none other than Peter Lorre. Well, that's the same. You see, it's a nickname of mine. After the war, I was a displaced person, just a a number on a passport. Uh, Lashif means a mere cipher. Seemed a suitable name. May I say you're a very important cipher? You flatter me, sir. You've seen that already. I didn't know that existed until I started to prep for this episode. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a big James Bond fan. I've read all the books and I found that uh, probably at some sort of convention when I was a kid. Uh, but yeah, there's a there, there's a really interesting thing. Like there's two James Bond books, uh, Casino Royale and I believe Thunderball, which have weird rights issues. So those are the two films that people can make and have threatened to redo like Thunderball. Somebody else can make Thunderball because of the rights issues. And that's why there are now three Casino Royales. Um, you know, can that I are say that I am shocked that Jack Black has never made Thunderball? Doesn't that just feel like the 2000s Jack Black comedy that should have existed? Well, if you add an S to it, I think then that's definitely a 90s comedy directed by Dennis <laughs> Dugan. Uh, but speaking of, you know, recasting James Bond with Jack Black, This was a big deal. Like the casting of Daniel Craig was a big thing. People were talking about it because I think at the end of Pierce Brosnan's run, people knew there needed to be a change. Like what was that change going to be? And this new Bond was going to be responsible for that as if the casting of Bond 
would dictate the script, right? Like we, I think we often look to, oh, who could it be? It's like, well, it really needs to come from the script, but we often look at the actors and like truly there's been such a line of actors that were considered after Pierce Brosnan. I mean, Colin Salmon, who is actually in uh, a Bond film with Pierce Brosnan, like he was jockeying for it at a certain point. Uh, then there are just, there are so many different odd ones like Dominic West and Christian Bale. You know, there are people like Clive Owen, uh, Sam Worthington, Henry Cavill, uh, Alex O'Loughlin, you know, everybody who's gone on to have these amazing careers, DeGray Scott, who uh, was originally cast as Wolverine, uh, all these great opportunities, but they pick Daniel Craig. Yeah, and it kicked off a huge internet fan protest campaign. I mean, one of the first ones, I mean, maybe part of why we had a new Sonic is because people have learned to harness the power of the internet to complain about casting on the internet. I mean, people made websites that were called like craignotbond.com or not the my webs- bond. Yeah, not my bond. The absolutely James Bond, that website, you know, they were furious. They're like, was one of the people wrote, my God, don't the producers have any brains? Craig is not Bond material. Bond must be tall, dark, and handsome, or at least two of the three. And he isn't even one of the three. Um, people were thinking maybe perhaps of Daniel Craig as like kind of this weird, wimpy guy from like strange thrillers. He'd done some big stuff, but like I think of him in this period as being the guy who's in this movie called Enduring Love. Have you heard of this movie? Oh my gosh, no, I haven't. Because I think oh. of him totally differently. What do you think? Wait, wait, tell me about Enduring Love. Oh, Enduring Love is such a kooky, kooky, kooky movie. Um, it's a movie where Daniel Craig plays this guy who's about to propose to his girlfriend in a park when suddenly this hot air balloon with like a kid crash lands. And all of these random men who are at the park start running to the hot air balloon and like grabbing onto the rope to like try to save it. And they fail and it blows away into space, but it blows away up. And one of the rescuers doesn't let go of the rope in time and dies. This is on the opening scene. And then like Daniel Craig and Reese Ifans are part of the people who tried to save the balloon and fail. And the way that Reese Ifans deals with the grief is by like stalking Daniel Craig throughout the whole movie. And it becomes almost like a single white female. It is an absurd movie. This is just a clip of it. I think you think that there's this sort of bond between us because of what we went through. Well, everything means something to someone. Everything happens for a reason. I have to say that as somebody who lived through this, I remember this quite clearly. And I was excited because Layer Cake was awesome. Like Layer Layer Cake was... You know, this movie where he's a a kind of a badass dude. I loved him in Road to Perdition uh, as well. Uh, And and he was in Munich. Like these are like so he was not somebody like that. He's in a Spielberg film. He's also in Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. Like but he wasn't like a a new find. And he had done stuff like this. But I think what he looked like more was a thug. Right. And I think that, you know, I remember really wanting it to be Clive Owen because he just did Croupier and I thought that like, oh, he would be great. You know, but there was something about him that made you feel like he could pull it off. It wasn't like he was just in rom-coms or whatever you just described there. It sounds insane. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, he had he had had some, some at-plate moments with some kind of cool action um, that I thought I was excited by him a little bit as well. So, but I know people hated him and the blonde was such a big deal. The blonde was such a big deal. 
And it's funny because the Broccoli's, I think, really tried to set off his tenure on the right foot. Like at the press conference where he really first met the press when he was introduced as Bond, they had him like zoom into the press conference on the Thames. He was like on a speedboat and then he sits down at this press conference and the British press just grill the fuck out of him. And I want you to picture Daniel Craig sitting at this press conference table and not really looking like the Bond in the movie yet. His hair is kind of long. I feel like he looks a little poetic. He looks a little bit like a, I don't know, philosophy professor. And they are just asking him, all sorts of stuff, and he is not wanting to answer anything. Playing Bond is every boy's dream. What do you look most forward to, and what intimidates you the most? Um, I'm looking most forward to actually starting, getting on with it, um, and being intimidated just by just about everything. James Bond is a legendary woman womanizer, and uh, who would be your ideal Bond girl, Kay Moss or Sienna Miller? <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into that. Have you practiced any of Bond's lines to yourself in the mirror? <laughs> or to anyone that you know? Honestly? Yes. No. <laughs> really? <laughs> not even the, I'm Bond, James Bond? I might have been. Yeah, <laughs> May, I might have done it. I, I was very drunk if I did. <laughs> By the way, a little detail on that question about Sienna Miller and Kate Moss. He had recently dated both Sienna Miller and Kate Moss. And that's part of why that question was just like, ah, to him. But this press conference did not go over well. Nobody liked it. The Daily Mirror wrote this whole article about it, calling him Bland, James Bland. And so he was really like on the back of his heels, feeling like he wasn't, he didn't have the people's faith that he could pull this off. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. It'll come from, you know, I was wearing the wrong colored laces, probably. I think that whenever you step into the shoes of something that people really love, you take on all their baggage. And I, and I think that, honestly, we haven't gotten into this that much, but the Broccoli's did him dirty. Like, he arrived in that press conference on a boat, like you said, in the Thames, with a life jacket on. He also <laughs> looked like he got a suit off the rack at Macy's. Like, he doesn't, like, the suit is a light blue shirt with a red tie. Like, he looks to me, like you said, like a philosophy professor. Like, and again, I just want to call out that it's ridiculous to attack an actor for the choices he's going to make as James Bond because he is just one third of that equation, right? It's got to be written. It's got to be directed. You could put him in a Pierce Brosnan film. His portrayal of Bond would be completely different. It wasn't like they asked him, hey, can you come in and pitch us a Bond? And he's like, oh, I think the Bond should be like this. You know, it's a it's an uncomfortable thing because. They've transformed something for us. They've become something for us. And when you attack somebody like Heath Ledger or you go like, Robert Downey Jr. is playing Iron Man? Like, what is that? Like, we forget, like, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't like a hot choice. Like, you know, it's like these choices are, you, you know, you're, you're just guessing it's going to be bad. And maybe that's, it does fuel you to prove yourself that you can, you can not only step up to the challenge of doing the part, but you can also win over everybody who doesn't want you to do well. Well, what I love is like a couple years after this movie comes out, the Daily Mail runs an article that is one of those weird bits of ephemera that has been like engraved in my brain forever. Uh, it was an article they wrote called License to Chill. And it was all about how Daniel Craig's Bond was such a hit with women that a company made a popsicle shaped like that scene in this movie where he like emerges from the ocean wearing Speedos. You know, that scene, this is him talking about it actually. Yes, I tried on quite a few pairs of swimming trunks, yes. The <laughs> Ursula Andrus, yeah, that was me. What was I thinking? What were you thinking? 
It's only a tiny moment in the movie, I promise you. And hopefully not a tiny moment in the movie. I'll take that back. They took that moment, that image of him in Speedos, his Ursula Andress moment, and they turned it into a popsicle. Apparently, like, Del Monte did a poll asking women what male celebrity they would like to see turned into a popsicle. And Daniel Craig heavily won in England. And they, they made him into, like, popsicles that are tasted like blueberry, pomegranate, or cranberry. And they were light. They're, like, 100 calories. Do you want to see a picture of this? Because yeah, I have a picture sure. online. Oh, that's amazing. It looks pretty good. Yeah, I'd eat it. Would you eat it? I would eat it. I mean, I it's, it. it's a little, you know, it's a little intense. Uh, but, you know, I guess I eat gummy bears and uh, and I also have Sour Patch Kids. So why not have a Daniel Craig? I will say, too, as we're talking about his body, there is something interesting about Daniel Craig's body. Like they make reference to it. Like you take good care of your body. He's in good shape. He is in amazing shape. But he also isn't um, inhuman. You know what I'm saying? It's like there are certain bodies that you see in film as these heroes that feel like, oh, I would never even that that is I can never get there. Like, when is James Bond working out? What is he doing? Like, and there is something about his body that is really well defined. And I think they play with this throughout the series as well. Him getting out of shape, him trying to get back into shape, him being heavier on his feet as he gets older. But I do like that he's starting from a place that is good. And probably even great shape, but not unattainable. And I think that that makes him, I think, a little bit more sexy. Like, he's not just jacked full of muscles. Yeah, I mean, if there is a body in this movie that I think is astronomical and above and beyond and unattainable, it has nothing to do with him. It's the guy from that first chase scene. It's the guy who plays Malaka, Sebastian Foucault, the guy who does all the parkour. Like that guy to me has a superhero body, not in terms of muscle, but just like what he can do with it. I'm just, I am entranced by like him in that whole chase sequence because like he's on wires and yet it still feels like one of the most real stunts I've ever seen anybody do. And that guy, by the way, he is not just a person who's really good at parkour or free running, as he called it. He's actually the guy who invented that. So the reason why we have any of this in movies is because this guy had invented it decades earlier. And when he talks about it, he talks about it almost more like it's a spiritual practice. It started a few years ago, 18 years ago, for running start. I had friends and we, we were on the rooftop and you just play like we, we were ninja. I, I was influenced by Asian philosophy, and this is where I start to, to use the environment as a, a way to develop your body, but also your spirit. You use all your possibility. You can climb, you can slide, you can jump, you can run. You can do everything. You can do tricks, you can do flips. I feel it's, uh, it's very close like dancing and uh, less than a, like a sport. Well, I'm glad to hear he's the originator of it because there was a point in action films where everyone was doing parkour and it got to the point where like really like it's the same way that you feel like everyone knows kung fu like you know it's like we all jacked into the matrix and we got parkour skills it it seems like after hearing that it is something that has to be practiced and focused on you know it, it doesn't seem like i'm on a foot chase i guess i'm jumping over this building now um and i just i appreciate that they got the originator of it yeah 
I think that of all the parkour scenes, this is my favorite. It took six weeks for them to film it. And the fact that it is balanced between like guy who's great at parkour, guy who is not doing it and is smashing through walls, I think makes you appreciate all the parkour even more. Because I totally agree with you. I don't want a James Bond who can do anything and everything. I want a James Bond who feels like the toughest actual human being. And I think people really responded to the humanness of Craig in this. You know, he gets a BAFTA nom for this performance. People really see something in him. And he loses, I think, to Forrest Whitaker, maybe. And where the other Bonds in the franchise lose me is that I feel like they make him just play the same note, the grim note, you know, the bitch is dead note. If you do need time. Why should I need more time? Job's done. The bitch is dead. And I don't feel that growth. I feel like I feel like they took away the ability for Daniel Craig to do some real acting. Although, you know, I said that Skyfall was the most beautiful Bond. I will also agree with you that I think it has the better theme song by far. Absolutely. I mean, there's no argument there. I mean, you can barely. I like this theme song. It's Chris Cornell from Soundgarden who does this one. Uh, and it's a great opening. It looks cool. Um, but the question does remain. Well, what is James Bond in the future? Just to go back to what I've been hammering since the very beginning of this, it's just not about who could be the next Bond. It's what the next Bond is from a creative standpoint. Like, what do we want to see? What haven't we seen? And I think it's getting harder and harder to narrow that down because when we have heroes like John Wick on one side and even Bob Odenkirk now with a movie like Nobody and we have, you know, Tom Cruise killing it in the Mission Impossible franchise, where does Bond fit and feel different? My hope is that they keep this franchise maybe a little bit more adult, but they move the needle back to the center a little bit more, bring that fun back. And I say that not in a way of making it unbelievable, but I do think if you are going to compete from a box office point of view, they have to really embrace a little bit more of the four quadrant Marvel world of it. I don't think that the Bond franchise continues to last for another 40 years if they are pushing it in a direction of adult only fair, because I think then you're only going to have adults watching it. And for me, one of the things I loved about James Bond was it was the first action movie I could watch as a kid. You know, I won't let my kids watch uh, John Wick, obviously, but can we find that middle ground of making this character fun, likable, the adventures exciting, but also bring in new viewers. I mean, I guess that's the question that they have to ask. No, I agree. And I mean, I totally get why Daniel Craig would say that Austin Powers effed them going into this. But at this point in 2022, it has been 20 years since the last Austin Powers film, since the one with Beyonce, which is all we'll say about that. And, And I feel like that's a generation of moviegoers. I mean, if you were born the year that Goldmember came out, you can go order your first Vesper in a couple months. So like, maybe we can bring that fun and that lightness back. Maybe we can have a Bond who like gets to have a lot of flirtation and consensual sex with people and move on, no harm, no foul. An enlightened, sexually liberated Bond. I would be happy well, with. Well, I, I also just think it's time for a bigger change. The one thing that the Bond franchise has flirted with for a long time is, what if it was a black Bond? What if it was a female Bond? Just do it. Just yeah. fucking do it. Because what we are saying about Casino Royale is, 
they pulled the trigger. They were like, maybe he's dark. Oh, maybe he's this. But then they would always go back and fall back on their laurels. I think that the way that this James Bond franchise ended with Daniel Craig allows them to reset the table once again, but not flirt with it because they have done that. They have played with a double O, a female double O. They have played with all of these things, but they've not committed to them. Oh, they're treating double O the way double O treats women. But to me, the the best way to go forward in this franchise is by making it different than John Wick and Ethan Hunt. And that would be having a kick-ass female action star. You know, Anna Diarmas is already doing like a spinoff of John Wick. And she was in uh, the last Bond film as well. But why not? We don't have that. I know we've flirted with like Tomb Raider and, you know, Salt and Mad Max Fury Road. We have like these great action performances, uh, Atomic Blonde, all these great ones. It's like, why not build a franchise around one? We don't really have that yet. Because even, you know, uh, Captain Marvel is not like this. It's, you know, can we do that? Like, what would that look like? And could it be a series that we could go back to again and again and again? I think you can. And I think that may be the best way to move this franchise forward. We've already seen a bunch of dudes do it. And there are a bunch of dudes doing imitations of it. So switch it up. You know who actually backs you up on a lot of what you're saying about like maybe the sense of lostness overall in the franchise is one of the reviews that came out uh, at the time of Casino Royale. And this review is actually one of the only pants. Casino Royale was like wildly loved. Everybody gave it great reviews, except The Observer, you know, from the UK, who, of course, really, really, really takes this double, 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 double seriously. And this is what they wrote. You don't expect Casino Royale to be 24, quite, or Bond to be Jack Bauer, but it seems bizarre to be employing a mix of Albanian and Swiss and African and Italian financial terrorists when you might think there are more real current fears to explore. Director Martin Campbell is also unsure about how much of the glamour of violence he wants to strip back. Craig is, not surprisingly, in more obvious pain than any previous Bond, but having put him there, the only way to remove him is through like a comically unexplained ambush. By the next scene, like Bonds of old, he is recuperating by the Italian lakes, his tenderized tackle magically restored. The problem with making Bond more real is that everything around him seems more fake than usual. Craig, always a charismatic presence, often looks unsettled by that dislocation. His sex scenes are more energetic than those of his predecessors, but even less convincing. He's hardly allowed any comedy. As a result, by the end of a curiously back-to-front film where he finally gets his theme tune and introduces himself, Bond, James Bond, he, like the creaky franchise itself, seems profoundly unsure whether he is coming or going. In that review, I think I see some of the dislocation that I hear you talk about in this film. And that I would say, I agree with on the whole of the tenure, that I think at the end of this film, you're right. They don't know whether this, where the, where the, where the Craig Bonds are going to go. And I think they get really scrambled and I don't think they take it to a good place. I don't care if James Bond becomes a daddy. Like that doesn't matter to me. That's not what I want from this character. So I wonder if we are coming to an accord that Casino Royale, as great as I think it is, and I think it is like a near perfect Bond film should almost be more of just like a one-and-done Bond. You can't do anything with this Bond after this after this movie. They do it all. They say it all. We have it all. Well, then we're saying the same thing. I think that's yeah. my issue. My issue has been, in looking at this, looking at the five films, it's this constant battle of what are we trying to do? And 
it's a little bit of a half step forward, a half step back, a half step forward. And I think that it makes the, the waters murky. So when I said to you early on, I have an issue with like Martin Campbell, like kicking this off and Purvis and Wade kind of telling the story, because I think what they tried to do so hard was set up this brand new version of Bond, but they didn't think about how it was really going to continue afterwards. And they made a great movie, but I don't know if they made a great introduction to a character that would grow. It's it's sort of like the issue that I have with uh, the Star Wars I knew you that, were going to say it. Yeah. I was holding my breath. I was like, here it comes. Well, it's like there's not a unified vision to kind of bring it through. Like, And I think if they were able to speak about it, they left the movie on a cliffhanger. It's the only James Bond movie that really rolls right into the next film. And for better or for worse, that's a really cool thing to end a movie on. Like, this is going to be different. We're going to tell this one story. But then when you don't bring anybody back over or finish that the right way, it gets murky. You know, you can't pass the torch on an episodic show. It's like, is it law and order or is it lost? And and I feel like what they did was they kind of split the difference. It's like, it's so different, but then you're left holding the bag. I think this is a great standalone James Bond film. And I think it did some damage to the franchise. And that's when Sam Mendes comes in for Skyfall, where he's able to say, no, 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 I have the vision for it. I want to bring it this direction. And then Spectre, which is creaky, but some great scenes, but you don't really remember that much of it. And then they do think they finally were able to mash it all together the right way at the end. I think they 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 spent a lot of time figuring out how to retcon things properly and give you a satisfying conclusion. I'm glad that Daniel Craig came back to give you that conclusion, and I'm glad that they went there. I'm glad they actually... Like I've been saying the entire time, they actually pulled the trigger. They actually made a decision. And that to me felt really exciting. I mean, I will say this. I didn't like anything about the latest Bond except for one scene. And that's the scene where he goes to Cuba and has that kind of mini episodic adventure with Ana de Armos as like a spy who's like learning how to be a spy in that way. He almost trains her through this fight scene. And she's so charming and she's so funny and it's like sexy and erotic, but they actually don't really bone. They just sort of have this like great moment, this like chemistry for one scene and then kind of go forth. That sense of play and adventure and, you know, delight and flirtation If you could bottle that and then put that into the next Bond, that's what I would want. Is like that scene writ large. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what you got in Skyfall, but we can uh, agree and disagree. (laughs) Severine, somebody take the prayers for my girl Severine. Oh, boy. I'll never get over it. I'll never get over it. Well, you know what? Let's revisit this conversation when a new Bond is announced and a new movie comes out. I would happily uh, dive back into this this grand debate because I think they have uh, their work cut out for them. But now we have our work cut out for us because we are leaving James Bond behind and we are moving into uh, a Thanksgiving movie, if you will, Uh, a movie that definitely plays in my household uh, around this time. And I'm so excited to talk to you about Planes, Trains and Automobiles, the only R-rated John Hughes film with John Candy and Steve Martin. It's truly one of my favorite films. And uh, take a listen to the trailer. 
During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Two happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're the Martone family. Paramount Pictures presents... Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see God Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Planes, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. You can check out Planes, Trains, Automobiles, wherever you get your streaming services. They also have a brand new 4K uh, Blu-ray released with all these deleted scenes, these long-rumored deleted scenes that I am excited to see as an experiment, but I don't want in my movie because I do think that this movie is fine the way it is. And when people really want all these extra scenes, it's like they were cut for a reason, people. Trust the process. Uh, Anyway, I'm excited about this film. Me too, man. And you know what? If I was stuck in a road trip with you, I think we'd only spend maybe three hours arguing about Skyfall. (laughs) If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up-to-the-minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive Unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an Unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like Screen Test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. And check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. 
Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.